Hello and welcome to chapter 36 of Walt Disney by Neil Gabler. Um, please be warned, this episode is taking place during a storm where I live, so we'll just have to bear through that. One war was over, but another was about to begin. All the time Walt was in South America, the supervising animators who had remained at the studio during the strike were working to finish Dumbo so that the studio would have something that might generate revenue. When the film was released in October, it received extravagant reviews, even though it had cost considerably less than its three feature predecessors, and even though the animation was less painterly and realistic than on the previous features. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times called it the most genial, the most endearing, the most completely precious cartoon feature film ever to emerge from the magical brushes of Walt Disney's wonder-working artists. Otis Ferguson in the New Republic rhapsodized over a scene in which Dumbo, Jumbo Jr., having inadvertently drunk some liqueur, hallucinates pink elephants. I have never seen anything to approach it and neither have you, Ferguson wrote, because there hasn't been anything. Some saw it as a return to Disney's unpretentious pre-Fantasia form. Saying that Disney had recently been sold a bill of very inferior goods by the long-word intellectuals, columnist Westbrook Pegler cheered that Disney had now made another great work which manages to ignore the evil all about and lift his fellow men. The curmudgeonly critic, Alexander Woolcott, who admitted that he had been less than enthusiastic about Snow White, Pinocchio, and Fantasia, wrote Walt praising Dumbo as the highest achievement yet reached in the seven arts since the first white man landed on this continent and the divine event towards which your whole creation has moved. To which Walt responded, it was just one of those little things that we knocked out between epics. Walt wasn't being entirely self-effacing. It was a little thing they knocked out, and though it once again traced the Disney theme of embracing maturity and responsibility and taking control of one's own destiny, even at the risk of being exiled from one's safe and satisfying childhood oasis, Walt didn't really have very much to do with it. When Time ran a piece giving the main credit to his staff, Walt grumbled to Dick Humor and Joe Grant, who had written the film, that the article made it seem that he was irrelevant. The Time article had been originally scheduled to run as a cover story on December 8, 1941, but it got bumped by another more newsworthy, newsworthy event, and a Time editor apologized to Walt that he had tried to reschedule it for the Christmas cover, but was overruled by co-editors who feared that readers would think that the magazine was trying to be fastidious in light of what the country now faced. What the country faced, what had bumped Dumbo from the cover, was, it in, was its entrance into World War II, triggered by the Japanese bombardment of the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii on December 7th. Since it was a Sunday, Walt heard the news of the attack on the radio and then received a call from the studio manager, who had been advised by the police that 500 army troops were already moving onto the Burbank lot and bivacking on the soundstage, where their job was to provide an anti-aircraft installation to protect the nearby Lockheed factory, which made airplanes for the armed forces. In short order, army trucks pulled onto the lot, camouflage was draped across buildings, parking garages and storage sheds were converted into ammunition depots, and a mess kitchen was established. Essentially, the army had commandeered the studio. 
The day of the attack, Kay Kamen, the head of the company's product division, was in Washington, D.C., seeking potential clients for commercial and industrial films and sounding out agencies about the possibility of the studio doing films for the government, the government that Walt had so recently characterized as communistic. Though Kamen mourned the loss of lives at Pearl Harbor and wrote Walt about the necessity of winning the war, he also saw new business possibilities in America's involvement and thought Walt's relationship with the coordinator of inter-American affairs could serve as an entree to other brands of government, other branches of government that would now need films for training and public relations. You should be a part of this, Walt, Kamen wrote, urging his boss to visit the Capitol, and they need you and want you, and I think the trip is very important. In truth, though Walt had always disdained anything that was contrary to the studio's essential purpose, which was to entertain, he had begun soliciting government work long before the strike as one way out of the studio's financial doldrums. In October 1940, he had met with a service representative about training films, and the next month he offered his assistance to the Defense Committee, which had been formed by the Association of Motion Picture Producers, to cooperate in making movies for the government. By March, he had placed storyman Robert Carr in charge of a Walt Disney Training Films unit to solicit industrial and government work, and that month, Carr sent a memo to the educational directors of the aircraft industries offering the studio's assistance. As the memo put it, an engineer or other representative of the client merely sits down at a conference table in the Disney studio and tells his story to a group of highly trained mechanical draftsmen and artists. The studio would do the rest. But Walt was leaving nothing to chance. On April 3, 1941, he hosted a luncheon and conference at the studio for government officials and representatives of the defense industries, 30 people in all. We have the plant, the equipment, and the personnel, he told them, and we're willing to do anything we can to help in any way. He followed up with a letter stating that he was motivated solely by a desire to help as best I can in the present emergency, and that he would make the films for cost and without profit. The studio was organized in such a way, he lied, that he could make the films without hampering his own feature production, not mentioning that the feature production was already imperiled by, eco by economics. While he waited for a response, he hired a Lockheed engineer, George Papin, to help him make an animated instructional film titled Straightforwardly Four Methods of Flush Riveting, which he showed to John Grierson, a documentary filmmaker who was attending the conference in his capacity as film commissioner of Canada. Shortly afterward, Walt landed his first contract from Grierson for a film on the fundamentals of flush riveting, an instructional film on an anti-tank rifle, and four shorts promoting the sale of Canadian war bonds. The riveting film was budgeted at between $4,000 and $5,000, a far cry from what the studio had been paying for its own shorts. But then the animation was a far cry from what the studio had been producing. Walt was relying on recycled scenes from old cartoons and on using more limited animation, that is, animation with less movement than that in his features and shorts. 
In May 1941, with the strike looming, he felt a new urgency in getting government work, and the studio stepped up its efforts. Walt dispatched Vern Caldwell of the training department to Washington with the flush riveting film and had him take it from government office to government office, including the offices of General George Marshall and the General Army staff. Walt continued to insist that the company was just doing its patriotic duty, but the fact was that the studio needed the contracts if only to keep the animators working and to offset the overhead. Throughout the summer and into the fall, Walt kept trolling for business with the lure of the Canadian riveting film, which, according to Bob Carr, the Canadians had extolled as miraculous, best we ever saw. In November, after he had returned from South America, Walt was meeting with members of the Defense Committee and talked with an advertising man and advisor to the Lynn Lease Food Division of the Department of Agriculture in the agriculture named Henry Sell about making movies promoting the program and possibly making other promotional films for several of Sell's commercial clients, something Walt had previously refrained from doing because he thought it demeaning. When Pearl Harbor was attacked then, Walt Disney was already deep into government work and was about to get in much deeper. Early the very next morning, December 8th, he received a call from a Navy official offering the studio a contract for 20 films on aircraft and warship identification at a total cost of $90,000, and shortly thereafter, the Navy Department Bureau of Aeronautics sent an officer to Burbank to supervise the project. And there's a note there. As one studio employee told the story, the Navy officer bludgeoned Walt into accepting a minimal budget, then told him that the conversation had been recorded to certify the deal. The animators drew wings on the animation building where the Navy was now headquartered. Meanwhile, Walt had completed and shipped the films for which Grierson had contracted, promoting the purchase of Canadian war bonds, and he was still dickering with Henry Sell on films for Lynn Lease. Yet the biggest measure of just how dramatically things were about to change at the studio came that very same week in early December when Walt received a call from John L. Sullivan, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Even before the Pearl Harbor attack, the Treasury Department had been considering producing films that might encourage Americans to pay their taxes, something that became suddenly more urgent with the country at war. Acting on a suggestion of Undersecretary George Buffington, Sullivan had told Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau that what John Barrymore can't do, maybe Mickey Mouse could, and advised they meet with Walt Disney. Walt had no desire to go to Washington, especially since it was Diane's birthday, but the Treasury Department insisted that the issue was pressing, so Walt flew out on December 12th, met with Morgenthau, had dinner at Sullivan's house that evening, where they roughed out a scenario over Martinez and then phoned Diane to wish her a happy birthday. He signed a letter of agreement the very next day, promising to produce the film for not more than $40,000, which was less than the cost of a typical Disney short. It wasn't the budget, meager as it was, that presented a problem. Walt was getting accustomed to cutting corners when he had to. It was the schedule. The Treasury Department wanted the film on or before February 15th, which effectively gave the staff a month to write and then polish the scenario, compose the music, and animate. Ben Sharpstein, who was producing, and Hal, Ad Hal Adelquist of Personnel, told Walt that they would need 20 men for the film, which was now titled The New Spirit, and that given the deadline, the entire short would have to be animated in a week. 
Never, not even during the final days of Snow White and Pinocchio when they were racing to make the premieres, had the studio been under such a crunch. What added to the tension was that they were no longer their own masters. They had to please Morgenthau. After working tirelessly on the storyboards, including sessions late on New Year's Eve, Walt flew back to Washington with Roy and storyman Dick Humor and Joe Grant on January 4th to get Morgenthau's approval. The secretary delayed the meeting one day when there were no days to spare. He had a migraine headache. He finally padded out to greet them in his bedroom slippers with his Great Dane at his side. An aide objected to Walt's intention to use Donald Duck, to which Walt reposted that that for the Disney studio to give the Treasury Department Donald Duck was like MGM giving them Clark Gable. But Morgenthau signed off and Walt rushed back to Burbank to finish the project. We slept on the job, Walt later recalled. We got beds in there. We stayed right there. We worked 18 hours a day. There was no rough animation. Instead, the original drawings went directly to clean up in ink and paint. It was completed and sent to the lab for processing on January 20th. A title song was recorded the next day. Technicolor got it by the end of that week and struck a print three days later, and three days after that, it delivered 250 prints. This is the fastest time ever made on any cartoon production, Walt wired Undersecretary Buffington. But it came at a psychological cost. As Wilfred Jackson remembered it, when Walt, still the perfectionist, saw the finished film, he was unhappy that some of the animation was not smooth, and he sat there pondering uneasily, not wanting to sign off on the film. Finally, he turned around and said, Jack, uh, Jackson, Jackson said, he rubbed his head. You know, well, Jack, he shifted in his seat. He got up and said with finality, yeah, and he walked out. He had all sorts of ideas and he couldn't fix it up. He didn't have time. Walt Disney had had to make a concession that his animation would not be the best. The Treasury Department had no such qualms. Buffington and Morgenthau both pronounced themselves pleased with the picture, and as George Morris wired Roy, greatly excited over ideas for other films. Morgenthau invited Walt and Lillian to Washington for the premiere on February 2nd and a celebratory dinner. As it turned out, the new spirit was a tremendous success. By one estimate, over 32 million Americans eventually saw the film at nearly 12,000 theaters, and of these viewers, according to a Gallup poll, 37% said that the film had had an effect on their willingness to pay taxes, and 86% felt that Disney should make shorts for the government on other subjects. Still, the poll contained one unsettling number that would soon bedevil Walt. Only 46% of Americans believed that the government should foot the bill for the film. Just days after the premiere, the House debated the Treasury Department appropriations and voted 259 to 112 to eliminate $80,000 that the department had requested to pay for the new spirit. The amount included costs for prints, distribution, and promotion. They have hired him to make a moving picture that is going to cost $80,000 to persuade people to pay their income taxes, declaimed Republican Congressman John Tabor of New York on the House floor. My God, can you think of anything that would come nearer to making people hate to pay their income tax than the knowledge that $80,000 that should go for a bomber is to be spent for a moving picture to entertain people? Billions for defense, Tabor orated, but not one buck for Donald Duck. 
Representative Carl Curtis of Nebraska called the appropriation the most outrageous and scandalous piece of money wasting I know of. Other Republicans opposing the Roosevelt administration lumped Walt with an apparent boondoggle, a dancer who had been appointed to a civil defense post, but whose major qualification, said the Republicans, was an apparent friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. In the upper chamber, though several senators came to Disney's defense, the expenditure for the new spirit was not restored to the appropriations bill. The irony was that Walt had actually lost money making the new spirit, roughly $6,000 on the production itself, and another 50000 in forfeited bookings of commercial shorts that were replaced by the government short. In his business naivete, he had also signed an unfavorable agreement with the Treasury Department, saying that he would make the film for out-of-pocket costs up to $40,000, not realizing, as Roy later casticized him, that this didn't include the indirect costs of supervision, lighting, heat, taxes, deprecate deprecation or depreciation, and many other such things, and that the government's general accounting office would hold him to the letter of the contract. In effect, then, Walt learned two awful but valuable lessons that would dominate his business conduct throughout the war. First, that government films operated by a different schedule and under different standards from commercial pictures, and second, that the studio was now always accountable to the government, which would prove an even sterner taskmaster than the Bank of America. If Walt had any relief from the work, the criticism, the disappointment, and the financial crush, it came when he and Lillian headed back to Los Angeles after the New Spirit premiere. Walt had never been a nostalgist. nostalgist. He was more likely to dramatize the worst moments of his life than to burnish the best. Yet what he had always cherished about his upbringing in Kansas City amid the traumas of the paper route was the Benton School. All these years he had kept in touch with his sixth grade teacher, Daisy Beck, writing her faithfully, and he corresponded with other teachers as well. So when he was invited back to the school on his way from Washington to celebrate the installation of two murals he had donated, he accepted, even though he now routinely declined invitations to speak or be honored. He always said he was too busy and too poor a speaker. The one-day return to Benton was triumphant. Accompanied by a Works Progress Administration Orchestra, 800 students, parents, and teachers serenaded him at an assembly where he showed the new spirit and another cartoon and then had Clarence Nash perform as Donald Duck. He was also awarded the Silver Loving Cup that the school's 70-pound relay team had won in 1917 when Daisy Beck had convinced Walt to compete. At a luncheon in his honor at a cafeteria on Troost Street near his old Laughagram studio, Walt introduced Arthur Vern Calger, his boss at the film ad company, and the woman whose baby films had financed his trip to California back in 1923. Afterward, he visited Bert Hudson's barbershop, where his drawings had first been displayed. He ended the stopover having dinner with Daisy Beck at a local home, which, like the other events of the day, showed where he had come from and just how far he had traveled since. The studio needed work. In the short term, while Walt waited for his government solicitations to bear more fruit, the South American films were his lifeline. Even late in the afternoon on the day of the Pearl Harbor attack, a Sunday, he was at the studio discussing how to enliven these cartoons. His intention, he told the New Yorker, was not to repeat the mistakes of his more imposing and financially unsuccessful features, which he now apparently felt had been too carefully tended. 
I'm going to make these South American pictures simple and not arty, he said in a complete reversal of his usual working arrangements. The best way is to work off the cuff. Don't have any script, but just go along, and nobody knows what's going to happen until it's happened. The original plan had been to make a series of South American-themed shorts, 12 in all, that would nevertheless be released on the world market with, with, Roy told their distributor, RKO, just as broad appeal as our present subjects. RKO was unconvinced. Already in January, the producer, David O. Selznick, who had also gotten involved with the coordinator's office through an organization called the Motion Picture Society, for the Americas was lobbying Walt and Jock Whitney to package the shorts as features, which he thought would give them both greater visibility and greater sellability, and Walt began to warm to the idea as a way of stretching his staff artistically and fulfilling their silly symphony commitments. If the twelve South American shorts can be put into packages of each, making three in all to be released during this year, he wrote Roy, I think we could enlarge our shorts program, which would give us a chance to include some silly symphony ideas that are now in various stages of production in the plant. To tie these disparate shorts together under the larger rubric of South America, however, Walt had to use 16mm film footage that he had personally shot during his trip, apologizing to Selznick for my bad photography and nervous hand. Now came the deluge. On his trip to Washington the previous December, Walt had been encouraged by Jock Whitney to see if he could help convince government officials there to centralize all film production in Hollywood with a special unit to be established at the Disney studio. Maybe the development above will be the answer to our problem, Walt wrote Kay Kamen, hopefully. As it turned out, the officials guarded their power too jealously to cede any authority to a central organization, but with Kay Kamen aggressively soliciting government agencies and defense contractors for films, the Disney studio found itself at the vortex of government activity. Within weeks after Pearl Harbor, the films for the Navy on warship identification were in production. The Department of Agriculture had contracted for a film promoting the Lend-Lease program. The Council of National Defense had, a com had commissioned a series of posters for a campaign cautioning Americans not to divulge sensitive information. And the director, Frank Capra, who had been appointed a major in the Army Signal Corps for the purpose of, exped of expediting production, met with Walt to convince him to join the Signal Corps. Walt declined, saying that if Capra needed him, he had only to make a request for the studio's services. Capra did, and Walt provided animation for Capra's Why We Fight series that explained why America had gone to war. At the same time that Walt was wading through these offers, the coordinator's office was pressing the studio to produce a new series of educational films on health and agriculture, and yet another series that would, as Whitney put it, deal directly with the Axis menace to freedom in Latin America. Moreover, the studio was inundated by requests from military squadrons for insignia, which it did its best to satisfy by setting up a five-man crew, even though there was no remuneration for the service. Nor did it stop there. Walt had personally lobbied with Lieutenant J.C. Hutchinson, who headed the Naval Film Program, and wound up with contracts for films that, sp that spring on, aer on aerology, meteorological conditions, aircraft carrier landing signals, carrier approaches and qualifications, aviation forming methods, mixed fixed gunnery, and finally one called Rules of the Nautical Road. 
Meanwhile, under pressure to diversify from the Bank of America and Kidder, Peabody, which had issued the Disney stock, Walt was meeting with executives from the aircraft manufacturers Curtis Wright, Lockheed, Beach, and Aronka about the possibility of making training films for them. There is nothing at the moment more important than getting a start in this industrial field, Fred Moore of Kidder Peabody wrote Walt, adding a vague threat that so long as you do not reach outside for broadening your field, your future outlook is not what we had hoped. The best part, Roy enthused to Walt after meeting with Curtis Wright representatives, was that these companies, unlike the government, could afford to pay more than cost. The studio could actually make the profit it's so desperate. Of course, if the best part to this work was the potential profits, the worst part was that the Disney Studio was no longer the Disney Studio. It was now an educational and industrial film facility, an arm of the government, with Walt and Roy virtually commuting from Los Angeles to Washington. And though Walt clearly recognized how imperative it was to do business with the government if the studio was to survive, he, who had lived only to produce great films, was frustrated. For one thing, he was frustrated by the nickel and diming of the government bureaucrats. The Navy, for one, had vetoed the idea of the studio adding a fixed percentage to its contracts for overhead and profit. An official suggested instead that the studio set a fixed price. If the actual production costs were lower than the budget, the Navy would demand an adjustment. If the costs exceeded the budget, the studio would have to absorb the loss. He was also frustrated by minor bureaucrats reviewing storyboards and issuing warnings and orders where he had been the ultimate power just a few months before. When the Navy's J.C. Hutchinson threatened Walt that he would either deliver the film on approach and landing promptly or bear the criticism which can be heard in the halls re Disney, Walt wrote back indignantly that he was disturbed by the comment. But in truth, he could do nothing about it because he needed to maintain good relations with the department. Walt more or less lost control, recalled Joe Grant, because we had so many of the army brass there at the studio, and all of them considered themselves producers. Finally, he was frustrated over the kinds of films he was now forced to make. He had bristled at the idea of having to produce largely unimaginative training and educational films with primitive animation, but he understood the economic and patriotic necessity of doing so. He was less amenable when he was approached by both the Treasury Department and the Coordinator's Office to produce overt propaganda, films that were designed to influence opinion rather than educate. Disney is fearful of being labeled as a propagandist in the public mind, with consequent damage to his reputation as a whimsical, non-political artist, Wallace Duell. The coordinator, Wallace Duell, the coordinator for information, told a Treasury Department official before Walt was to visit the department that March to discuss another set of films. He is bothered by a few abusive letters he has had about the new spirit, new spirit charging him with various political, racial, and other affiliations. And Walt apparently recalled a question that Lowell Mellet, the head of the Office of War Information, had asked him over dinner at Secretary Morgenthau's house during Walt's earlier visit. Aren't you afraid that you will hurt your reputation by this sort of thing? The propaganda films that Morgenthau and Jock Whitney were both pressing him to make, with the lure of their providing joint financing, were a series that would directly attack the Nazis and their way of life. 
That February, Reader's Digest had published a story titled Education for Death that described and lamented the Nazi indoctrination of children. The next month, after his trip to Washington, Walt had gone to Pleasantville, New York, the headquarters of the Digest, to discuss a film series that might be sponsored by the magazine, and the editors quickly pushed the idea of a film based on education for death. Jock Whitney took up the cause, and Morgenthau did, too, though there was disagreement on whether the government should underwrite the films, in which case Walt felt that exhibitors would refuse to show them, or whether Reader's Digest should underwrite them, in which case exhibitors would be more likely to show them but the coordinator and the Treasury Department would lose control over the content. The rights to Education for Death had already been sold to Paramount, but Whitney was certain he could retrieve them. Reluctantly, Walt Disney crossed the line into propaganda. With financing from the coordinator in the background, as Roy put it, the studio put Education for Death into production that June. Later that summer, at the recommendation of producer Walter Wanger, who headed up the Motion Picture Society for the Americas, Walt began preparing to animate a short entitled Reason and Emotion from a book called War Politics and Emotion that showed how to how the latter had overwhelmed rationality in Nazi Germany. Still later, he put into production a short called Donald in Nazi Land that used Donald Duck to ridicule German leader Adolf Hitler. Both films were apparently made with financing from Reader's Digest and the coordinator's office. Walt commissioned studio composer Oliver Wallace to write a song for the latter, which Wallace said he banged out in an hour, incorporating a razz at Hitler in the chorus. When Spike Jones, then a trombonist, a trombonist on, in John Scott Trotter's orchestra and the leader of his own comical band called the City Slickers, selected the song Der Führer's Face, complete with the Raz, as the B-side of a new record, it became an instant hit, prompting the studio to change the film's title to the song's title. Jones's version told... Jones's version sold 1.5 million copies and provided an anthem for the war just as Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf had provided an anthem for the Depression. Finally, again at the urging of the coordinator, Walt prepared a Nazi-themed version of Chicken Little in which Foxy Loxy gains access to the chicken coop by deploying Nazi tactics. But these were small propagandistic forays, buttressing the popular mood by attacking Nazism and the Nazi leader. They didn't change public opinion, they reinforced it. Now Walt aimed higher. If he was going to make propaganda, he wanted to lead a crusade, not follow one. He wanted to help change the course of the war, and perhaps more important after the hiatus on the features, he wanted to make a film that actually mattered to him. Still angling to make a compact with the Disneys, Reader's Digest had, exerbed, had exerted and then sent Walt the galleys of a new book by a former Russian air commander with the imperious name of Major Alexander P. Dsevarsky, who had lost his right leg at the age of 22 in an airplane crash during World War I, but was so good a pilot that he had received special dispensation to return to his post and then shot down 13 more planes before coming to the United States as an assistant naval attaché to the Russian embassy and after the Russian Revolution, a consultant to the U.S. Air Service. In America, where he became a citizen, he developed the first automated bomb site and the first turbocharged air-cooled engine for fighter planes. It was not only his name that was imperious. 
So was the man. Saversky was the son of an opera singer who was the first Russian to own and operate his own private plane. At 48, the major made a dramatic impression himself with heavy-lidded, deep-set green eyes, an aquiline nose, full lips, and dark hair tinged with gray that swept back from a thick widow's peak. He had an office on the 34th floor of Rockefeller Center, where the only signed photograph among the memorabilia was one of General Billy Mitchell, the champion of American air power. He also owned a townhouse on Central Park and a beach house in Northport, Long Island. Supremely confident, Saversky, like his friend Billy Mitchell, didn't hesitate to take on the military establishment, which was exactly what he was doing now. His book, titled Victory Through Air Power, propounded the thesis that, as he put it, only air power can carry an offensive war to the enemy, and only the offensive can win the war. In essence, both the Army infantry and the Navy battleships were irrelevant. He further proposed that air, pro air power now made it possible to reduce an enemy nation to helplessness without the time-honored preliminaries of invasion and mile-by-mile -mile conquest. And he maintained that the best way to achieve this objective was with long-range bombers with heavy payloads attacking our enemy's nerve centers rather than through small aircraft flying from carriers. When the book was published in late April 1942, it became an immediate bestseller. It would wind up the fifth best-selling book of the year, but it also stirred controversy and rebuttals. The Philadelphia Record thought Saversky discounted the cooperation between the services that was needed for victory. The Washington Post said he relegated all other weapons to a class with the javelin and crossbow. The New York Daily News complained that it would take until 1945 to have enough long-range bombers to fulfill Saversky's mission, and the New York Times opined that if Saversky could guarantee where the theater of war would be in two years and what kind of aircraft would be needed, the military and naval authorities will receive the information with delight. But if the critics and most of the military were skeptical, Walt Disney was enchanted. Walt loved technology generally, and he believed fervently in the airplane specifically. The thing that I felt just went right along with our century, you see, Walt would later tell an interviewer. I just felt, well, gee, if they're going to go out and try to use battleships and all those other things, I just didn't believe it would ever work. And May... Even before he had read the book, he had sent out feelers to Saversky about the possibility of adapting it for the screen, though he warned his contact to definitely eliminate my name from all inquiries made. By July, Walt had closed the deal. He knew that making the film wouldn't be easy. The Navy, which gave him much of his government business, feared that long-range land-based bombers would obviate the need for aircraft carriers, was adamantly opposed to Saversky's theory, and even called Walt into a staff meeting during one of his frequent Washington visits to dissuade him from making the film. The whole point with Saversky, Walt, is not that anybody quarrels with him upon the value of air power, one Navy official wrote him tactfully, but that he believes in the application of air power by long-range land-based bombers, which, to carry out his ideas, would have to carry impossible bomb loads and go impossible distances. Later, the Navy went so far as to promise the studio enough business that it wouldn't be able to produce any other films. 
Others, like Commander John S. Thatch, a decorated flyer who had served as the technical advisor on the fixed gunnery and fighter tactics series, told Walt that Seversky's ideas were unrealistic and that short-range missions were preferable. He even challenged Seversky to an aerial dogfight, Seversky in his big long-range bomber, Thatch in his fighter plane. But Walt could not be dissuaded. Excited by the prospect of a victory film that could use animation to show how long-range bombers could win the war, he felt his old passion rising again. He began to feel engaged. He had discovered something that could occupy him throughout the summer, something important, while the rest of the studio churned out its routine training in educational films. Animator Mark Davis said that Walt was sold completely, dedicated to it, and once he had committed, Walt boasted that the studio became a sort of mecca for visiting airmen who agreed with Seversky and delivered the latest intelligence to him so that Walt was now part of a small movement. Seversky himself may have had a reputation for being arrogant, tough-minded, and cantankerous, but Roy had met him that July and was impressed, calling him refreshing and interesting, and what was important to Roy, not out to squeeze the studio for additional money. For Seversky, as for Walt, this was all about patriotism, all about promoting a new way to win the war. What Seversky felt was the only way to win the war. Now, pressed to convince the public of the theory as soon as possible so that he could make a difference, Walt began yet another push. He felt another pressure, too. A preliminary survey conducted for the studio showed that the public was tiring of war films, so that, as the pollster put it, the sooner victory through air power can be released, the better. Walt met Seversky for the first time on July 28th at the studio, already armed with storyboards and surrounded by his staff, including Dave Hand, Bill Cottrell, and Percy Pierce. As he had been with Leopold Stokowski, Walt was deferential, recognizing that this was Seversky's project and that Walt was really just the facilitator. Layout artist Ken Anderson remembered one rainy week in that August when he and fellow artist Herb Ryman were essentially locked into the studio and forced to come up with a final storyboard. Seversky would come in and encourage us, Anderson said, and Walt would give us threatening looks like, you guys better do a good job because I'm counting on you, by which Anderson thought he meant that the country was counting on them. Walt was focused again, maybe for the first time since Fantasia. That August and September, as Seversky shuttled between the studio and various speaking engagements, sometimes snatching just a few hours before having to leave again, the staff raced to complete both the script and the storyboards. Walt kept emphasizing plausibility. We have got to build it up so that the people are convinced they are right with us on this, he said at a story meeting. If we get too fantastic, it's going to cause people to discount the whole thing. In fact, it was Seversky, not Walt, who was more likely to insist on the entertainment value of the film rather than on its propaganda value. And when Walt objected to one point, Seversky snapped, If we're going to get stuck in the mud of today, we may just as well wipe out the whole picture. Still, Walt saw aesthetic possibilities, too. Though he called it a bastard picture like The Reluctant Dragon, since it combined live scenes of Seversky lecturing with animation illustrating his points just as Dragon had combined Robert Benchley in animation, and since, as in Dragon, the animation itself was less refined than in the features, he spoke glowingly of how the animators could present the future. We can show tomorrow... 
We can show torpedoes striking ships, he said. We can show huge cargo and bombing planes bombing planes such as Seversky foresees. He was especially excited by a projected final sequence that showed the enemy as an octopus and America as an eagle. You bomb the heart of the octopus and we show the big thing as we hit it, he gushed. Hammer on the vitals of the things. It knocks out the supplies and weakens every tentacle. While we're hammering away at the tentacles, we're still driving at the heart with our American air power. As Walt saw it, this wasn't going to be ordinary propaganda any more than the features were ordinary cartoons. This was going to be great, earth-shaking propaganda. The basic idea is big, he wrote Percy Pierce, Dave Hand, and the film's screenwriter R.C. Sheriff, after hearing that audience interest was high. It was the first time that Gallup has been able to report this on any picture he has surveyed, and Walt urged that they try to rush the film out no later than December to take advantage of public anticipation. Walt began shooting Seversky's scenes in early October 1942. The filming had to take place at night because of the roar of planes taking off and landing nearby at the Lockheed plant during the day. Given the schedule, it was hectic. I've scarcely been in my office for the last 10 days, Walt wrote producer Walter Wanger at the end of the month. What with shooting live action on the, on the DeSeversky, along with everything else, I haven't had a minute at my desk. He was haggard-looking and worn, too, often unshaven and bedraggled in his loose pants and open-collar shirts. But for all the time he devoted to his oversight of victory, Walt was, as usual, not entirely satisfied. Watching the rushes, he complained that Seversky kept saying the same thing over and over again and that he was skipping information that the public needed to appreciate his theory. He also felt that they might be relying too heavily on what he called visual stunts and suggested that they turn our thinking from tricks to guts, and Walt worried that time was running out. As he told two visiting United Artists executives who had agreed to release the film when RKO declined, there is a little too much optimism now, with Americans thinking that the war might end in a year, when Seversky believed that it was likely to continue for another five. If Walt felt he was saving the country from Nazism with victory through air power, he was also helping to save South America with his other films. All that spring and into the summer of 1942, the studio had been completing the package of shorts, now called Saludos, inspired by the South American trip of the previous year. We had better whip it into shape now or else forget it, Walt conceded after watching a reel of the film that May, though forgetting it was really not an option. He spent much of May and June polishing the film, then shipped it out in July so that Nelson Rockefeller and President Roosevelt could screen it. Everybody in our office is most enthusiastic about Saludos, Frank Allstock, now the director of the Coordinator's Motion Picture Division, wrote Walt after a July 29th preview. It was shown last night to a number of the most important people in the government, and its success far surpassed any of the pictures we have shown. Rockefeller himself wrote Walt that the film quite exceeds our highest ex expectations. Already, the studio was considering a sequel featuring other South American countries. 
Meanwhile, as he was attempting to save South America from the Nazis, Walt was also charged with saving that continent from disease, pollution, and malnutrition. Late that May, even before completing Saludos, he and seven of his artists had gone to Washington to discuss a series of health and educational films with uninspiring titles, including The Winged Scourge about mosquitoes, Water, Friend or Enemy, and The Green That Built a Hemisphere, as well as the four propaganda pictures with the coordinator's office and to meet with Vice President Henry Wallace. Walt certainly understood the importance of these films both for South America and for the studio, but they were basically make-work, used to keep the animators drawing and the studio running. In effect, the studio, which had once existed to make films, now made films so that it could continue to exist. To Walt, who understood exactly what was happening, it was dispiriting. While victory seemed to satisfy his need for a major project com commensurate with his ambitions, he was also looking for a property for an animated war film that might have commercial possibilities, since he was stimmied from making his own entertainment features. He thought he might have found one that July when he received a story from a young Royal Air Force lieutenant named Roald Dahl. Ooh, I love Roald Dahl. I don't know how many of my listeners know who that is, but he wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, he wrote uh, James and the Giant Peach. He wrote uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. He wrote Matilda. Great children's author. Definitely read him if you can. Dahl's story concerned gremlins, fictional creatures who were blamed for the various little malfunctions that seemed to bedevil war pilots. Walt clearly liked the idea, especially after a brief national gremlin craze that fall, and he managed to deter other studios from making gremlin films of their own by saying that he was putting one into production. Walt eagerly commissioned a script, and Dahl visited the studio that November, but the project seemed as vexing as the gremlins themselves. Even before signing the contract, Roy complained that Dahl failed to give a logical reason or motive for the gremlins' behavior. Percy Pierce thought that the only feasible approach would combine live action with animation, but that no matter what they tried, the gremlins were very, very heavy villains for mucking up the planes and threatening the pilots. Ward Kimball said that one problem was that no one seemed to know what a gremlin should look like. Dahl returned to the studio in April 1943 to develop the film, and Walt continued trying to hammer the story into shape, but his interest had begun to wane as he confronted the material's problems. One artist accompanied Walt to a meeting of RAF flyers to discuss their encounters with the quote-unquote gremlins, but the flyers preferred to tell stories instead, and Walt left at midnight, frustrated, declaring that he wasn't going to make the film. Definitely, the gremlins will not be made as a feature because of the feeling on the distributor's part that the public has become tired of so many war films, Walt wrote Dahl in December 1943, after what was now a year and a half of attempting to crack the story. He said he had tried to interest his crews in making it into a short, but had had little success there either. If we ever hit upon an angle that seems right for production, we'll get in touch with you. He never did. Stay tuned for more next Monday.